Everyday consumers are being bombarded with the next big thing in health, wellness, and fitness. What's the future of keeping ourselves healthy, and what's just a passing fad? Hi, I'm Joey Thurman, and if you don't know me, I'm a health and fitness expert and author. I've been fortunate enough to work with celebrities, athletes, C-suite executives, and everyone in between. I've been featured on the Today Show, Live with Kelly and Ryan, Good Morning America, TEDx, and lots of other publications. As part of my ever-increasing thirst for knowledge, which ironically happened after college, I decided to create the Fatter Future podcast. What sets this podcast apart is that I am the guinea pig for these episodes. I don't only want to bring in world-class experts on the show, I want to truly get a first-hand experience what it's like to, say, go on ketamine and trip for my depression, go on a three-day fast drinking nothing but coffee and water for age reversal, eat nothing but plants and get the blood work done to back it up, or even get my brain mapped to see how messed up my head is from getting knocked around playing hockey. Once I try these things, I bring on the experts to talk about my experience and explain it to the audience in a digestible manner and ask the true question. Is it a fad or is it the future? Because after all, we don't want to be fatties. Yeah, I'll take a kid with green eyes, more athletic, extroverted. Yeah, let's go with brown hair. This is a possibility. Today, I'm interviewing author of Hacking Darwin, Jamie Metzl. Now, this is a not, not a matter of if, but when we're going to do this. What are the ethics of actually choosing the traits of your children? Now, here's a great conversation with Jamie Metzl. What's going on, everyone? It's Joey Thurman, and welcome to another episode of the Fad or Future podcast. I'm incredibly excited today as I have Jamie Metzl here. Can I call you Dr.? Please don't. It's embarrassing. <laughs> Jamie right. is perfectly fine. All right, doctor. I'm going to read his bio and you're going to see why I want to call him doctor. So Jamie Metzl is a technology and healthcare futurist and geopolitical expert, novelist, entrepreneur, media commentator, and senior fellow of the Atlantic Council. In 2019, he was appointed to the World Health Organization Expert Advisory Committee on Developing Global Standards for the Governance and Oversight of Human Genome Editing. Jamie is a former White House fellow and Aspen Institute Crown Fellow. Jamie holds a PhD, doctor, <laughs> uh, in Asian history from Oxford, a JD from Harvard Law School, and is magna cum laude, Phi Beta Kappa, graduate of Brown University. Jamie's new book, Hacking Darwin, Genetic Revolution and the Future of Humanity, is out now. Dr. Sanjay Gupta said, if you can only read one book on the future of our species, this is it. Big words, man. Well, you know, this is serious. I mean, our species, we've been evolving by these Darwinian principles of random mutation and natural selection for about 4 billion years. And now we are taking the reins of our own evolution. It's a big, big deal. It's going to change everything and yeah. everyone needs to know about it. We were talking a little bit beforehand. I actually read this entire book, listened to the audio book. It's not your voice. It should be your voice. I but I mean, it's brilliant because for me, I read a lot of journals and reports and everything because I have a short attention span, but I couldn't put this thing down because I just kept thinking, what if, what if, what if? We're going to talk a little bit about the, well, we're going to talk a lot about the book. So Hacking Darwin. Tell me a little bit about the premise here. I know you basically start getting ready to freeze your boys. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I talk about that in the book and they're frozen actually at just a few blocks from where we are recording. So we can, afterwards we can do like a field trip. Uh -huh. This they're guy's in, smart. I'm going to go try to get some of his boys. And, hey, honey, you need this guy. 
Yeah, they're in liquid nitrogen three blocks from here. Okay. We can certainly go visit. So hacking Darwin, as I was saying just, uh, just a moment ago, random mutation and natural selection mm -hmm. are these forces that have driven us from being single cell organisms about 3.8 billion years ago when life began to being us. And it's this incredible journey. And now for the first time in our history or all of known history, we, and by we, I mean these little monkeys who yeah. climbed down from the trees. We were just one animal among all of other animals. All of a sudden, we have the tools to totally recreate all of life on earth, including <sighs> our own. And this, the power of what is increasingly possible is just mind-numbing. And yeah. the reason why I've written the book, and, the, and I really appreciate you're saying that it's accessible because that's the whole point of it, it is. is that this is so big, we can't just say, oh, well, we have some experts or the government right. who are going to make decisions. Even if we had the most responsible experts and the most responsible government in the world, like this is about us. It's, it's not just some abstract thing. This is about us, our healthcare, our kids, yeah. our future, and everybody has to be part of the conversation. This is not just, and, and a lot of books, especially, you know, written with somebody who lives in the States is just talking about that. You, I mean, you caught, co you cover everything in here. I mean, all the way down to eventually how it's going to be like Starbucks when we're going to order our children like off of a menu. Well, I don't know if we're going to order them off of a menu, but certainly the way we make babies is okay. going to change radically. And the nature of the babies we make is going to change radically. So it won't be like Starbucks, but there'll be pieces of it that will be right. kind of like that. And and right now, you know, when we think about making babies, what do we think about? Well, most people- Back of the Volkswagen? Yeah, that's the, well, that's yeah. the way we've done it. And whether it was the back of the Volkswagen uh -huh. or behind a bush or <laughs> just in front of everybody, yeah. whatever, whatever your yeah. thing is, you stick one thing and the other thing yeah. and then- most of the, sometimes there's a baby. Oh shit, that's how it works? <laughs> exactly. FYI. <laughs> okay. And, but now we're shifting yeah. and our species increasingly isn't going to make babies through sex. We are going to make babies through science. Yeah. I mean, one of the quotes, uh, one of the many quotes, literally, I mean, you, I started highlighting the book and I just had to put the highlighter down because there, there was just too much. So then during the audio book, I can click and do some notes in there. But one of the quotes you said, it's going to be strange for people eventually to conceive a child by having sex. Yeah. So right now, when you meet someone who hasn't vaccinated their kids, mm -hmm. what do you think? You think, well, first, that's actually a really natural thing to do. It's not natural to vaccinate sure. your kids. So if our goal was being natural, we would say, oh, that's so great, anti-vaxxers. You're not vaccinating right. your kids. But we know from our history, and there were like, well, I don't know the number, exact number, 100 million people died from the Spanish flu. <laughs> How many people died from smallpox yeah. and measles and all of these kinds of things? And and we should be thrilled that we've been able to apply science to fight against the vagaries of nature. I mean, right. that's the history of healthcare. That's the history of agriculture. That's the history of weapons because we were prey at some point yeah. and then we fought back. And so there's an error rate in nature. And so when an you know, average person has a child through, the average two people have a child through uh -huh. sex, there's about a 2% chance that their kid is going to have some kind of harmful and even deadly genetic mutation. And I'm a parent myself and 2% scares the hell out of me. It should. I mean, think of all of the things that we do to reduce risks that are lower than 2%. Every right. time you get in a car, 
you have much less than a 2% chance of getting in a car accident. Yeah. But we put on a seatbelt because it seems like, well, I don't want any risk. And so if we are, which I think we will be eventually, able to say that if you have a kid using in vitro fertilization, so you extract your eggs, extract. Sure. You extract your eggs, which is real extraction. Right. And extract your sperm means, you, you know. Yeah, go in a cup. Hey, <laughs> exactly. Here's a, here's a dirty magazine that exactly. you probably don't want to touch. Exactly. Or, or some porn video from years ago. Just uh, exactly. I, I don't know whatever the hell is going on. And that's yes. the image I have in my mind. Yes, correct. And that's actually what's happening in fertility clinics uh-huh. <laughs> and sperm banks around the world. But if you conceive that way, you're going to have perhaps a lower than 2% risk that your kid is going to have this kind of harmful genetic abnormality. Over time, more people are going to say, hey, that seems like an okay deal. Mm -hmm. And then once we make that shift, which people will do for these safety reasons, then they're going to say, but as long as you're doing it this way, as long as we've taken conception outside of the body, we have the ability to apply science. And what does applying science mean? It means first, we're going to be able to screen these embryos to eliminate many of these genetic risks, but we're also going to be able to screen in, meaning make choices if we have, let's say you have 10 or 15 Mm -hmm. fertilized eggs, pre-implanted embryos, and we're going to increasingly know something about what kind of kids those embryos have the potential to be, whether it's height personality style, genetic component of IQ, whether they have even the chance of going to the Olympics Mm -hmm. as a sprinter. I mean, all these things that we see as as fate, we're going to know not everything, but more about. Eventually, I mean, the way you were describing in the book, you know, and maybe you've got 10, you know, fertilized eggs and embryos, and then you're you're looking at it. So it's not like we're going through and making sure that this one has a hundred something, you know, IQ. It's looking at that deviation, the average, right? Right. So in the beginning, in, in the beginning. So yeah. this one, these ten, this one might have the higher chance for having a better IQ or more fast twitch muscle fiber. Right. So then they could be have more of a propensity to potentially be a sprinter. But eventually down the line, we may even have more and more options to choose from thousands yeah. of embryos. So they, yeah. So phase one is we'll have our quote unquote natural genetics. Okay. Meaning, so let's say you and your wife and you have fifteen eggs extracted from your wife in uh-huh. IVF fertilize, let's say all are fertilized and you choose from those 15 and you'll have a range of options. So right now you could line up those 15 in the lab and say, this one of these 15 is likely going to be the tallest and this one is likely going to be the shortest. And so pretty soon, a decade or so, we're going to be able to make those kinds of rankings, not just for height, but for the genetic component of IQ, for aspects of personality style. But then step two is what if we could have many more of these fertilized eggs or pre-implanted embryos? Right now, the limitation is that human female egg production is limited. It's unlike your average male ejaculation has about up to a billion sperm cells. That's that's impressive. Yeah, Yeah. it's pretty good, but it's it's just, we didn't do anything for it. It just happened. Biology. But the average woman having her eggs extracted in IVF has about 15 eggs extracted. Okay. But what if it wasn't 15? What if it was unlimited? What if it was a million or a hundred thousand? 
And that is a technology that increasingly exists. It exists in animal models, hasn't yet been applied yeah. in humans. As a matter of fact, I'm meeting next week here in New York, Shinya Yamanaka, who's uh -huh. the Japanese Nobel laureate who actually invented this process of creating what are called induced pluripotent stem cells. And that's a technical word, uh -huh. but it's, it's pretty simple okay. to understand. So your listeners understand that a stem cell is a cell that has the potential to become anything. Right. That's why when you're just one cell, you're a fertilized egg, that cell is the blueprint for all of you. And then what happens to cells is they specialize over time. And so this first cell has the potential to become all of you, but it begins what's called differentiating. And okay. so it breaks into different cell types. And that's why you can have skin cells and blood cells mm -hmm. and heart cells. So everything comes from that. And so what Yamanaka did is he developed a technique to take these cells back in time. So like you have a skin cell, yeah. your skin cell. In the beginning, it was an embryonic stem cell. But what these Yamanaka factor does is it goes back in time. So you take, in this case, you take a skin graft from the mother. Uh -huh. You have these four what are called Yamanaka factors, and they take that skin cell back in time. And so rather than going from stem cell to skin precursor cell to skin cell, you go backwards from skin cell back to stem cell. <laughs> and so now- This is a real thing. This, this is, is not real. like sci-fi. No, this no, this no. is happening. This is the future. This is the present. This Seven is right years ago, which is a long time, Yamanaka got the Nobel Prize for this and he had developed this technology before then. All right. So you take this skin graft from the mother. Uh-huh. And in this skin graft, I mean, there are millions of skin cells. And so let's just say, let's call it 100,000. Okay. You take 100,000 skin cells, and then using these Yamanaka factors, you take them back in time. And so now it's not 100,000 skin cells, you turn it into 100,000 stem cells. Wow. And then- you induce these stem cells to go from their stem cell state where they could be anything. Uh -huh. So you say, all right, we want you to begin specializing. And what do we want you to begin specialize doing? We want you to become an egg precursor cell and then an egg. So your skin cell has gone back in time and then forward in time. It's like, it's like imagine you're like on a road, you're going down one path and you, you got the wrong turn. You go back to where you made the wrong turn and you go the other way. Man, Michael, and, Michael J. Fox. And exactly. Future, no, that's right? exactly yeah, what it is. Right? And so now you have 100,000 eggs. We talked about this billion sperm for each ejaculation. So you fertilize 100,000 <laughs> eggs using an automated process. Wow. Then- you grow them each for five days. Okay. And so you know this from high school biology. It yeah. goes one cell, two cells, four cells, eight cells, 16 cells. Yeah. After about five days, you extract a few cells from each. And those are the cells that if each of these embryos had continued growing, they would have become the placenta. So it's not like you know somebody gets born without a finger or something sure. like that. And then you sequence those cells. And the cost of sequencing in 2003, it was about a billion dollars for whole genome sequencing. With a B. With a B. Okay. Now it's about 600 for whole genome sequencing. And you wouldn't even need to be so thorough. That's for your entire That's genome. That's a nice discount. It's, it's getting there, yeah. but it's going towards zero. And so it's going towards essentially just no cost. And so, so this then, is why this has taken so long, just because uh, a price point, right? It's a price point. Okay. But, but the price point is going towards zero. So the, the price is going to be essentially off the table. Yeah. 
So you sequence each one of these 100,000 embryos and you have all of this information, which we're going to have because we're getting more and more people being sequenced uh -huh. in the context of our healthcare, which is moving towards precision healthcare, which requires that everybody have their sequenced genome as part of their electronic health records and yeah. life records. And then you're going to, we're going to have all this information. And then it's going to be, and I had an ed editorial about this in the New York Times, going to the fertility clinic in, let's call it 2045, 2050, they're going to say, well, what do you want? And then it's not going to be from an unlimited, it's going to be from the range of possibilities of you and your partner, whether it's your wife, an egg donor, right. or, or somebody else. But you have a range of possibilities. Like if me and my girlfriend were to do this, yeah. maybe one of the possibilities of my genetics plus my girlfriend's genetics would not be the capacity to win the 100 meters in the Olympics. I yeah. could have a gazillion embryos and I wouldn't do it. I'm good at other right. things. Yeah. They might write great poems. Yeah. But, <laughs> might be a poet. Yeah, exactly. Might be smart. Exactly. But within that, you'll be able to choose, say, and you say, why? Well, here's my priority. I don't want a kid who's going to die of some terrible genetic disease or disorder. That's right. my, my number one. Yeah, well, you, you make a really good point in the book. And sorry to cut you off, but yeah. you're talking about vaccinations and what is natural anymore. And I would do anything for my son. You know, if yeah. you say I would do anything, I'd pay any amount yeah. of money. And if I had an option prior to where I could say he would never get sick or this or, you know, yeah. God forbid, any sort of like illness or cancer – I'm going to do that. The ethical question is like, eventually, it's probably not going to be that big of a deal. Well, that's the thing. I mean, there are different kinds of people in this world, and some people are going to come to that conclusion. And there's um, variation among people within a community. And there are some people who could have, and I encounter them every day, who I say what I just said. Yeah. And they say, that seems terrible. Like you're doing something horrible. You're fighting against nature. I would never do that. And I always say that's a perfectly legit thing. And yeah. there are those differences within societies. There are some whole cultures where people have just different attitudes about life and competitiveness. I yeah. personally, I spent a lot of time in Korea, South Korea, and I, maybe even North Korea, which I've also spent time in, but it's just a different view. And when I tell Korean friends, like you could select from among your embryos and give your kid a maybe up to a 15 point bump mm -hmm. in IQ. Which is in huge. Genetic, it's huge. I mean, the difference of 15 points is like monumental. Was that Einstein or Schwarzenegger? Yeah, yeah that, exactly. Is, is that the, is That's that, what I write about yeah, in the book. Yeah. But I threw in David Hasselhoff just for fun. Hoff, yeah. yeah. My Korean friends say like, well, wouldn't everybody want that? Because in Korea, like there's no doubt your job as a parent is to push your kids forward as aggressively as you possibly can. And that's why you send your eight-year-old kids to cram schools to start uh -huh. preparing for college entrance exams in a decade. You know, lots of parents give plastic surgery to their daughters as high school graduation gifts because they're saying, well, you know, the way you look, it's going to get in the way of your right. advancement. We're going to make you look better. I mean, it's just like, and so when I talk to Korean friends, it's like, there's not even a question. Oh, like, yeah, of course. No yeah. deal. But when I talk to, you know, other European friends and American friends, they said like, no, no, this is crazy. We're not accepting nature. We're on this path to ruin and destruction. This feels like eugenics. And there's no right or wrong, mm -hmm. but we need to recognize that all of this is going to play out within the context of us. Yeah. And so with all of these pressures, the pressures of our being different, 
our society's being different. We're competing with each other within and, and between society. So all this stuff is going to get pushed forward. So you were given an example in the book if you know, if a woman that you know, got IVF, whatever, 10 years ago or something, right. and, and then she wants a second child and then she goes in and like, oh, do you want your kid to suffer from sort of disease? No. Okay. Well, we can turn that off. You know, they're not going to get that. What kind of eye color? What kind of height? What kind of personality? What kind of athletic ability? Do you want them to be a poet? Do you want them and all sorts of things. Eventually, she's has to struggle with, well, of course I want my kid to be smart. Of course I want my kid to have all these advantages. And that's just amazing to think that we're going to get to that point, but eventually the competition around the world What's going to, I mean, you know, competition breeds us getting further and further. What, what's, what's the law with it? Moore's law. Moore's law, Moore's yeah. Law, right? That there's competition. It's going to make us go further faster. It's yeah. just crazy to think that's kind of how we're going towards. Yeah. And there will be consequences for doing it mm-hmm. and there'll be consequences for not doing it. And you won't know the answer. You won't, it will be impossible for people to really weigh the costs and benefits while they're making the decision because this stuff is going to be playing out. So you're having a kid now, especially when, you know, this is where the first generation that even has this as a possibility. And you could think, well, I'm going to take this risk for my kid because I want to give my kid the greatest chance to live a long, healthy, robust life, right. to have a you know, higher than average capabilities in whatever areas. But it could be that there's something about this doesn't work. I mean, we're at a very early stage or there, there's discrimination against these people or yeah. something. And so you, we have to make these decisions like all decisions, without perfect knowledge. And so how do we do that? Eventually, are we going to get to the point where the mother isn't actually carrying the child? It's going to be in a lab? It could be. I mean, so there's a lot of work that's being done on artificial wombs. Mm -hmm. Right now, I mean, there are lots of kids who are and have always been born premature. And so in the old days, which wasn't even that long ago, if you were born significantly premature, you were just going to die. And then over the last hundred years or so, there's all this new technology that is pushing back the date for when in a pregnancy, a premature baby can be born and survive. So we're kind of coming at it from one side of the kids who were born, whatever, after seven and a half months or something like that. I mean, that was really dangerous. It's less dangerous now. And we're developing this capacity to keep pre-implanted embryos alive in the lab longer than before. So it used to be that 14 days was the legal limit, but it was never imagined that you could get up to that point by mm-hmm. keeping a pre-implanted embryo alive in a lab and you do it in, in a, essentially a dish. But now we're exceeding that. So we're kind of coming at it at both ends. And there's a lot of work that's being done now on these artificial wombs. Mm-hmm. I do think that artificial wombs will work and will be used for animals. Okay. And the reason is because it's unfortunate, but humans don't really care all that much about the welfare of animals, particularly animals that we eat. And so you look at these chicken farms or even the cows, I mean, it's actually quite horrible. Yeah. I can't even look at those pictures. And so, but for humans... And my friends tease me in the kind of tech futurist world when I say this. Like, there's something that's kind of magical that happens, some kind of connectivity between the mother and the embryo and then the fetus Mm -hmm. that she is carrying. And I would really worry that if we just had kids being grown in a dish and we tried to replicate all of that, you know, chemically, 
Could we do it? Maybe, probably. Yeah. Maybe right. could you could use you know blood from humans, but I would really worry developmentally because yeah, yeah. something is happening there and we don't really understand it. Maybe we will at some point, right. but I write sci-fi um, and I write nonfiction. And yeah. one of the reasons why I like writing sci-fi is it kind of opens your mind to what's possible. And mm -hmm. a lot of this crazy stuff is really quickly becoming possible. And especially on things like reproduction. We think, well, what are the use cases? I mean, if you're, you're with your wife, I mean, like, why not have your wife, you know, carry a baby? It's kind of yeah. an amazing thing. If you are, you're trying to populate some distant planet and the fuel cost and the energy cost of getting humans to that planet is prohibitive, uh -huh. could you send embryos and a life support system. So we can send a spaceship. A spaceship with, with- Full of embryos. Full of embryos with these kinds of support mechanisms and a robot that would <laughs> that would be trained in getting these kids going. I mean, wild. it's crazy, yeah. but the further we go, yeah. the harder it gets. Yeah. And so if we're going out into space, and frankly, we know that our sun is going to explode and our planet is mm -hmm. going to go away. And if you love humans, as I do, you think, well, I don't want that to be the end of our story. Right. And you know, it's a billion years away from now, but if we want to live then, we better start thinking about it. Yeah, if we want to live then, we got to think about the now. Yeah. You make a good point about, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, you know, growing a baby in a lab. I know right. when my wife was pregnant, she was just talking about how she couldn't explain like how, what this connection that yeah. she had. So I know me, I would be concerned if we're raising these children in a lab and all of a sudden you'll get that connection because that connection is right away. Like yeah. once she was pregnant, she's like, I, I feel it. It's, it's, it's crazy. I feel yeah. it. And then what well, we didn't know, my son was a son. We just kept calling him slash her nugget. That's so I was talking about <laughs> a little, you know, little nugget in her stomach. And, yeah. uh, you know, he, so you didn't do the testing to know the none, No, no. So, also, yeah. so tell me that's really so that, that was Why? because we didn't know how many kids you were going to have. And we just have the one. If we have the one, amazing. If we have more, also amazing. But we had this thought. I think I wanted to know a little bit more than she did about like if it was a boy or a girl and kind of prepping. And she's like, it's a baby. What are you going to do? Like clothes are clothes. No big deal. But she was absolutely right because the moment that he came out and that experience of just to say, like, I got to call it, it's a boy, and then cut the umbilical cord. And then I got to go out and tell my in-laws, my mom were in the waiting room, like, it's a boy. And it was just this magical experience. Mm. And there's so few things in life that we don't get surprised about anymore. But you could by this thing. Like if, you, if your thing is like willed ignorance, yeah. you could just say, all right, I'm getting my coffee or my breakfast uh -huh. delivered. And you just do a deal. Don't tell me what's for breakfast. Just bring <laughs> something different. And so it's so funny because yeah. I'm so the opposite of that. Yeah. My feeling is if there is some information that's relevant to me, yeah. I want it. I want it maximally yeah. and I want it now. And, and it's really a relevant point because you know, I have a lot of friends in the medical world and there is a raging debate, especially in the genetics world, about how much raw data should people have access to? And mm -hmm. there are some people on one hand who say like, people are going to go nuts. If they have raw probabilistic data that you have a 20% greater than average chance of getting some kind of deadly cancer. Sure. That, and maybe that's still a very low chance, 
like, don't give this information to people because they're going to Google it and then they're going to sell their right. house. Dr. And, Google. And, yeah. then they're, and that's one argument. There's another argument that I certainly believe my friend Robert Green at Harvard, he's a big advocate for this as well, is that people can actually handle probabilistic information about themselves. Yeah. And so for me, I would want to have all of that information yeah. because with this – like you could have had with your child, and maybe you did at three months, you could have had a non-invasive prenatal testing. I'm sure you you screened for chromosomal. There, there was all there was all. I don't even remember all the crap that they had us do. But yeah, like they, the thing we want we do we just wanted, and we're like we want a healthy baby, we want yeah. a healthy baby, and then it came out and ten fingers and ten toes, yep. and he was crying and just the perfect little dude. So yeah. we were fortunate, but I could definitely see how as more and more of these tests keep coming yeah. out and I'm sure there's going to be tons more and like you can find out this and the, yeah. if, if, and their likelihood of having whatever. And then they're having so much information and, and then how much information is too much information. Yeah. If it's just some sort of percentage, 50% likelihood of X or 50% like, then is, are you driving yourself crazy? Maybe. You know, but, I, that's, you know? and, but you use the word perfect. Right. And for sure, for your kid, that's the way, that's our biology. Is yeah. that our kids are perfect? Yeah. If you think like, oh, other oh, he's kids perfect. Are, There's other nothing kids wrong. Are perfect. It's perfect. No, no, but, son. If you're listening, no, no, you're no, perfect. But and that's one of the critiques of this stuff that I write about is yeah. that people say, well, geez, is it like going to Starbucks? Is yeah. this like, are we going to commoditize our kids? Like, you know, I ordered the high IQ. I ordered the guy who was better at sprinting. This <laughs> yeah. guy's better at marathon. You didn't get running. an A on this test. What the hell? We, we exactly. picked you out of a thousand embryos. Exactly. And so it's a real question. Yeah. That's why I never downplay the significance, the philosophical and spiritual and moral and personal. I mean, what we're talking about, it's fun to talk about as yeah. sci-fi, but what we're talking about is the essence of what does it mean to be a human being? That's the core of this. Right. There are things that people that they have these genetic abnormalities where you talk about if we're going to go into athletics, you know, we can choose a person that might be more athletic or more of a sprinter. You even talk about mutations like Abraham Lincoln and Michael Phelps when they had, a, yeah. they had genetic advantages. Yes. What was that mutation? The Marfan syndrome. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that's this thing is that we haven't had the ability to look under the hood uh -huh. of people. But now we do, and we will find that our greatest champions in everything, yeah. or most everything, are actually genetic mutants. And that is really hard because we just think that if you want to be you know, the world's fastest sprinter, like you just you know run uphill to school both ways and really want it and, and you can do it. Right. But in fact- the percentage of humans who have the genetic potential to win the 100-meter race in the Olympics is small yeah. relative to all of us. They had this woman, Castor Simania, mm -hmm. uh, who was the cross-gender, transgender, getting the word wrong, woman right. who was winning the world championship at the 800. And she is different, right. biologically different right. from these other people who she is faster than. The reason she is faster than them is because of that biological difference. And probably everybody who wins the 100 meters in the Olympics, probably everybody who wins the fastest yeah. marathons, they are genetically different from most of the population. And that's why they can 
do it. Right. And then there's the Kalenjins are this tribe of about 4 so million people in Kenya. Yeah. And then there's a Nandi sub-tribe, which is 1 million people. And it's this astronomical percentage of all the fastest marathon times in history are this group of 1 million people. I originally come from Kansas City. It's like one and a half million people. <laughs> Imagine it's like Wichita, Kansas is dominating global right. marathon running. And so we are going to be able to see this. And then we're going to have to say, well, what does it mean to us? And it's also going to raise the question, well, I have a kid and this kid's dream in life is to win the 100 meters sprint at the Olympics. And maybe, and we're not there yet, maybe in 10 years or 20 years, I will be able to say to that kid, look, I love you. (laughs) You're great. You are fast. But statistically speaking, with your Mm -hmm. genetics, the chance of you winning the 100 meter sprint in the Olympics are negligible. Right. Even though it's, it's, we yeah. start out with yeah. dreams crushed. You know, it, it's really hard. What if, and there's all kinds of dystopian versions of this, what if a society said, well, why would we waste our time you know, trying to push people to be our greatest physicists if we thought there were a range of genetic profiles that increased the likelihood that somebody would be like a superstar physicist? That doesn't mean that everybody within that range will achieve that. Yeah. But let's just say that you say, well, we're going to sort our newborns based on our best guess of what they may be great at. This is like a Plato's Republic model or like the Chinese Olympic sports schools. I wrote my novel, Genesis Code, is about this. And and let's just say, sorry, we're going to have this group of people who we think could be great power lifters and this group of people who could be great physicists and this group of people who we think have the potential to be great pianists or yeah. or virtuosos. And then you say, all right, we're going to have those people. We're going to funnel them toward these specialized trainings. And then it's, just, it's going to be like a filter. And so most people maybe have the potential to be good something, or mm-hmm. but maybe they're not good at it, or maybe they don't like it, or right. maybe being good at that one thing is influenced by something else like positive attitude sure. or, or whatever. But when you start with that pool, yeah. it's probably easier to get to the tip of that spear sure. and to have these national champions. And so I'm not saying this is the right thing to do. It's actually, it's threatening. It's challenging. Yeah. We're humans. We're these crazy hubristic species. Some countries are going to do this. Well, yeah. I mean, you talk about um, the boat China. They're already kind of doing this a little bit. I mean, even go to, or we're sending our kids to science and math high schools. There is a high school, well, now more than high school, fifth grade up in Florida, Bradenton, Florida called IMG Academy. Mm. $80,000 a year to go there. Starting a fifth grade, it's a boarding school for sports. Over 70%, and I went there for a week and I trained there. Over 70% of their kids got a college scholarship. Over 60% of them are division one scholarships. In my high school, there's like 500 people. I think one person got a division one scholarship. The ROI. So you figure is like wherever you're going. I mean, division one is less expensive than, but let's just say yeah. you that you have a smart kid and you want to get them to Harvard right. or whatever. It's actually a pretty and you yeah. pretty good strategy and the, yeah. the finances come out about yeah. even. You drop a few hundred grand in yeah. high school and 20% of them are scholarship too. 
this company is making money hands over fists, but I went there and it's a machine, yeah. you know? So how is that any different? Then all of a sudden, maybe we take that and then we look at their genetic markers and then, and then you're putting these kids that have a higher propensity for sprinting or baseball yeah. or hockey or whatever, and then you're putting them in the school and you just keep stacking the deck. So the Russian military is doing that now for recruits. If someone's joining the Russian military, they're sequencing them and they're saying, all right, we think you should go train to be a sniper or you should train to be a Marine or, or whatever. The information is probably not good enough yet for that to be all that meaningful. But 10 years from now, 20 years from now, I think it probably will be possible to identify wow. a range of your recruits who are the people who are from lots of information, including genetic information, uh -huh. who are the people who are likely to excel as snipers once you've kind of identified what are the core are capabilities of being as, yeah. I mean, so it's moral attitudes, it's focus, it's depth perception. For each one of these things, if I ask you like, what makes a great running back? Mm -hmm. You could say, all right, well, I'm going to break it down into 10 core things. Yeah. And so you could, maybe for lots of things in life, you could break it down into X core things. Wow. Can we test that now? Obviously, you can look at uh, embryos and see, you know, what has a higher propensity for IQ or athletic development. Well, but this, yeah. so even in IQ now, I mean, it's very, very early stages. So right now, like I said before, you could rank embryos likely tallest to likely sure. shortest. You couldn't yet rank them okay. likely highest genetic component of IQ okay. to lowest. But we're probably a decade away from that. Okay. But we're getting there. Getting there. And, and the <laughs> core issue for that is that our biology is about as complex as it's been for millions of years. Mm -hmm. But our tools and capabilities are getting much more sophisticated. And those are yeah. on an exponential J-curve. Yeah. So there'll be a, an intersection between those things. One of the things that really stood out to me is we're talking about, I mean, it was Einstein's IQ 160. Yeah, yeah. Like so, that. okay. And you're like, what if eventually we have IQ score of a thousand? Can our cranium actually even take that? Yeah. What's that going to look like? Yeah. And maybe those people will go crazy. We don't know. And maybe, maybe like Stewie from Family yeah, Guy. Exactly. Exactly. Or it could be that the capacity of that brain is part inside the brain and part outside the brain, just like the brain of your iPhone is in the cloud. Wow. I mean, that's the thing. That's why for me, I have to, I go back and forth between identity as a nonfiction writer and as a sci-fi writer, because our world is changing. It's changing. It's, it's the speed of change is accelerating. And so if you look backwards to understand the rate of change, you're by definition being too conservative. Wow. All right. So I know you're on a time crunch. I got another question yeah. for you. You do a lot of speaking engagements and you, in colleges and everywhere else. What's one of the main questions that people pose, you know, once yeah. you're done talking? I do a ton of speaking and it's part because I feel like I'm like a quote unquote evangelist from the future. <laughs> yeah. And it's not that I'm trying to tell people you have to do X or you have to do Y. That's not my message. My message is this world is coming. And you should have very strong views on what feels okay and what doesn't feel okay. Mm -hmm. And if you want to be part of shaping this future rather than sitting back and having some other people's decisions shape you, now is the time when you need to educate yourself. You need to get involved. You need to get engaged. And I've written Hacking Darwin yeah. as kind of a one-stop shop. Like if, if you just read this book, hopefully it's fun and you can read it at the yeah. beach. But then you know enough to be part of the conversation. And then once you have that, these are basic human questions. Any like you know, the, I, I spoke to the top science scientists at 
Lawrence Livermore National Labs, and I've spoken to seventh and eighth graders, and they all get it yeah. because these are human questions. So the, a lot of the questions I get are about equity. Mm-hmm. What if some people have access to these technologies and some people don't? Because yeah, often, have often genetic... the rich get access yeah. to well, every, much You know, lots. I mean, there's a first adopter for every technology. I mean, there was the first guy to use the plow, the first one to use a computer, mm-hmm. first one to use kind of everything. And so yeah, that is the case. And there are cases where the first person to get it ends up conquering everybody else. I mean, the the Mongols had these stirrups that other people didn't have, and Uh then they kind of kicked everybody's butts and built this huge empire. The Europeans had these weapons and these ships and diseases, and they leveraged that to kind of conquer the world. And so they're always our first adopters, and we want that. What we don't want is the first adopters to use their access to subjugate everybody else. That's really, really important. But the way we do it is getting people involved now so we can make sure that our political leaders are held accountable, that we're building structures that can optimize the good stuff and minimize the bad stuff. People also ask about diversity. What if everybody makes the same decisions? Like I want a healthy, tall, high IQ kid. And what I always say is that's a real danger because our diversity is our core survival strategy as a species. And so things that we may feel are good now maybe won't be good if the environment changes. But like with the dinosaurs, it was awesome to be a T-Rex. I mean, like nobody screws with you when you're a T-Rex. I'll be a T-Rex. Yeah, but then after the asteroid hit, being a T-Rex was a death sentence. Actually, being a cockroach was a much (laughs) better deal. And so before the asteroid hit, if you said, hey, what do you want to be? Everybody would have said, well, shit, I'm going to be, I don't want to, I don't want to be a roach. I'm going to be a T-Rex. I think if you're going to take anything and somebody says, do you want to be a cockroach or a T-Rex? Jamie just said you shouldn't be a cockroach. Well, no, what I'm saying is <laughs> that life won yeah, because totally. we had some cockroaches yeah. and some T-Rexes yeah. and all the T-Rexes died and the cockroaches lived. Wow. This was fascinating. All right. So normally with my guests, I say fad or future, but yeah. I have an idea what you're going to say. No, so, but it is the future, yeah. but I will say is there's for all of these future tech things, there's always a hype cycle because there always feels like, oh my God, it's going to change everything. It's going to change everything tomorrow. And then it's going to be like five years from now, 10 years. It's like, well, my cousin had a baby and they did it through sex and everything was fine. (laughs) It is true and it will be true, but all of this is coming. And if it's 10 years or 20 years or even 30 years, it's coming and it's coming quick. And then really just to repeat myself, but it's my kind of core message. And so I'm so happy to be here on your podcast. Everybody needs to be part of this. This isn't about some kind of abstract future, some kind of sci-fi imaginings. This is about the way we're all going to live our lives. We're all going to be making big fundamental decisions about ourselves based on these technologies. And the sooner you kind of get into the Mm -hmm. game and get into the game just by understanding it, just by being able to have informed conversations with people around you, the better off you're going to be and we're all going to be. Yeah. You know, I think it's scary. I mean, it's definitely scary for us to think about, but we have to have that conversation right now because if we don't, then all of a sudden, once this happens, we're going to be stuck trying to go on Google and figure out what the hell is happening. And if you pick up Hacking Darwin, check out Jamie, jamiemetzel.com. HackingDarwin.com, Twitter and Instagram at Jamie Metzl. 
Tell you what, guys, this was one of my favorite podcasts. I'm Joey Thurman. This is Fatter Future. Don't be a fatty. Yeah, he, he liked that one. <laughs> F-A-D-D-Y. <laughs> be a part of the future. Jamie, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Really my great pleasure, Joey. Right, take care. Oh, that was a fun episode. My favorite part. Yeah, we're going to get on a spaceship. A little bunch of embryos, millions and millions of them. Maybe take a robot, go off to some other galaxy and repopulate a planet. <laughs> with the robot doing it. Crazy. Next week, I fly to Harvard, and I'm interviewing the author of Lifespan at Harvard Medical School, David Sinclair. I should say Sir Dr. David Sinclair. This guy was knighted. Yeah, he's kind of a big deal. Can you imagine living till you're at least 120 years old and a healthy 120, maybe 150? David Sinclair breaks down how we can live longer, how... Aging should be classified as a disease. Amazing conversation next week. Do not miss it. Subscribe and don't be a fatty.